This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Jerome Chazen, a founder and former chairman of Liz Claiborne, Inc., recently wrote a book entitled My Life at Liz Claiborne, How We Broke the Rules and Built the Largest Fashion Company in the World. Indeed, Liz Claiborne grew from revenues of $7 million in 1977 to more than $2 billion, joining the ranks of the Fortune 500, before Chazen stepped down as CEO in 1996. Knowledge at Wharton asked Chazen to discuss the particular challenges of running a successful company in what is known to be a fast-paced and fickle industry. Jerome Chazen, thank you for speaking with us. In your book, and indeed in the title of your book, you talk about breaking the rules of running a business. What rules did you break? Well, we broke, we broke a lot of rules. Um, when we started our company, we had determined to, um, uh, to distribute the merchandise primarily through department stores. Right. That was uh, largely due to my background and understanding department stores and just thinking that that was the right way to go. Um, the department stores at that time, we're talking now 1976, um, did not have any department to handle uh, coordinated separates. As a matter of fact, there were no coordinated separates in the market. We kind of initiated that type of clothing in, in the department stores. And... Um, they didn't have a place to put our merchandise. And then they complained also, uh, the department stores at that time were set up so that they had a blouse, to, even with, where they were selling separates, they had a separate blouse department and they had a skirt department and they had a sweater department and so on, none of which were coordinated, all of which were bought by separate buyers. Right. And um, so... Aside from not having a space on the floor for coordinated uh, separates, uh, they didn't have a buyer who was capable of buying them. Mm-hmm. And so that was, we, we had to get them over that. We had to break that rule. You know, this is the way we do business in our store. And we said, well, you can't, this is the way we do business, and I think you're going to have to accommodate us. And we did get a few, I mean, it sounds a little arrogant. It wasn't. We, uh, it was a lot of begging and pleading that went along with it. But we did get some stores to agree to at least test the concept. And it was extremely successful. We, uh, the consumers loved it. And once that happened, the word got around very quickly in the uh, retail world. And shortly thereafter, I would say, I can't, I can't exactly specify when, but shortly thereafter, the momentum of our growth started, and we went through a period of a number of years where our biggest problem was producing enough merchandise. But we had to get it started. Was that Liz Claiborne herself? Was that her idea for doing that, or was that a company decision? I think it was my idea. Okay. All right. Um, I... I always was very interested in the consumer, followed the consumer very carefully. I had had virtually my entire career in the um, fashion business, one aspect or another. And 
I just felt this very strongly. It was just an idea taking place at a time that Liz and her husband, but, but especially Liz, um, was looking for something else to do. Right. Okay. She had just been uh, told that the company that she had worked for for 15 years was closing, and um, she needed a job or she needed something. Mm-hmm. And she just didn't want, she had been a dress designer, and she just didn't want to keep doing what she had been doing. Right. And um, so we discussed this idea. She liked it. And I discussed the consumer that sort of fit the, the mold of that. And Liz's comment was, you know, I think right. I am that yeah. woman. You know, it's interesting because um, she was a terrific designer, had great ideas. And yet, as you point out in your book, she was also very shy, a, a person who disliked public appearances. Was that hard to get around, given that the company was named after her and she was no doubt sought after for a lot of, of interviews and public speaking? Right. Well, <clears throat> in terms of corporate events of that kind, you know, with analysts or people like that. And of course, we were not we were a private company for the first five years we were in business, so there wasn't very much of that involved. But Liz never participated in that. Yeah. She, was, she was the head of the company in name only, in a sense. And it was done for a variety of reasons, partly because we thought it was a good idea and it would... Um, get us a lot of publicity. And uh, what one of the things we were trying to do is we were trying to position ourselves as some, like a designer company at affordable prices. Mm-hmm. And in those years, it was only designer companies that had a true designer at the head of their company, like Oscar De Laurento or Calvin Klein or uh, Ann Klein, and so on. Um, there were no companies at lower price levels who did that. One of our competitors at the time was a company called um, Ellen Tracy. Right. And there was no Ellen Tracy. It was just a name. Mm-hmm. And that's the way most of these companies were. They sometimes had a woman's name, but it wasn't a real woman. Um, in the case of Liz, we had a real woman. Um, in terms of her appearances at to g- going out to stores and things like that, she understood that it was important, and she reluctantly went along with it. We didn't do a lot of those things. She could have been busy, I think, you know, every week mm-hmm. with another appearance someplace if she, if, if she would have done it or if she had the time to do it. But we did them several times a year. And... Um, she was terrific. Yeah, when she did, right. Yeah. So the company was officially launched in 1976. Right. Um, so today's economic and, and retailing climate is clearly much different um, from what it was 35 years ago. Very. What are what are the what are the one or two main differences, and do they make it harder or easier to launch a fashion business? Much harder. Because I think. why? Well, um, if, like us, you, you decide you'd like to sell department stores, you have a really tough problem <clears throat> because the 800-pound gorilla there is the Macy Company, yeah. and Macy's has 900 stores. And how is a newcomer going to go into Macy's and expect them to do business with them? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you couldn't make enough goods if, if, in fact, Macy's wanted to buy it. And um, 
Macy's, you know, you're not going to move the needle for Macy's, so why would they want to get involved with somebody new? Hmm. Um, it would have to be the case where um, if a particular company or uh, designers or some company m- made its reputation somewhere else, either by selling specialty stores or maybe it's a celebrity company, that kind of thing. Um, but for a normal person to try to get into department stores is virtually impossible. So now you're left with the independent specialty stores. And um, it's a market. Mm-hmm. It's a small market. The, um, the largest specialty stores are the chains. And none of the chains, uh, well, let me put it differently, all of the chains do their own manufacturing. Mm -hmm. They just don't buy goods in the market. And whether it's um, Abercrombie or The Gap or Limited or any of those companies, they all do their own manufacturing today. Interesting. So um, you can't sell those people. As far as the independent specialty stores, there there are many of them. They're mostly small, and there are probably hundreds, maybe even thousands of companies out there that manage to make a living selling small independent specialty stores. Okay. Mm-hmm. But it's small. Yeah. Okay. Um, as a businessman who was involved, you know, for so long with, with Liz Claiborne, how smart or not was it for the company to sign that deal in 2009, whereby J.C. Penney would become the exclusive retailer for the brand, and a deal that you know ultimately led the company, led Penney's to buy the whole company last year? Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't buy the whole company. Okay. They bought the Liz Claiborne entity, mm-hmm. which was <clears throat> the intellectual property and the name. That's all there was to buy. Um, I wasn't directly involved with the company, but in conversations that I've had in the past about why it happened, it happened because the company was hemorrhaging cash mm-hmm. like crazy. Mm-hmm. There was a concern that they might even go bankrupt, and they had to make some kind of a decision. And I know for, for, well, what I've heard anyway, is that the company approached Macy's and said, you know, we'll do anything. Let us just see what we can work out if we have to give you the line exclusively, if we do this, that, or the other thing. And Macy's just said no. Oh, okay. And um, so really there was no place else for them to go. Now, what had happened prior to that, which um, you didn't bring up, but which was critical to this um, whole second thing that took place is several years before that the management and the company had made a decision to take one of the Liz Claiborne labels they had a label called Liz and Co. Yes, I remember that. Right. And they gave that label to J.C. Penney. Oh, okay. And Macy's went berserk. Mm. when that happened. All right. So. And as a result of that happening, the Macy organization said, you know, we're not going to stay in business with one of our largest suppliers and fight J.C. Penney for the business. That's not where we want to be. It's almost a little bit like the Martha Stewart thing now. Yeah. 
And so Macy's, um, little by little, uh, cut back on mm-hmm. their uh, purchasing of Liz Claiborne. I noticed that, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So um, when when the final thing happened and the and management, a new management at this time, because they had replaced the CEO, uh, <clears throat> when the new management went to Macy's, uh, Macy's was, you know, sorry, guys. Mm. Um, so it was, you know, not just the one thing, it was a couple of things. Okay. Yep. How do you feel about the decision to change the name of the company to Fifth and Pacific? So the company, the Liz Claiborne Company today, basically consists of three major brands. Right. Jesse <clears throat> Couture, Kate Spade, and Lucky Brand? Exactly. Right. And that's, <clears throat> and that's where that's the Liz company today. Okay. Since there's no Liz, it didn't seem to make sense to keep the Liz name. Uh-huh. That's why they changed it. Um, Fifth and Pacific, I think they went out and they hired branding geniuses to help them <laughs> come up with a name. And that's the name they came up with. What do you think of it? I don't know. Hard I to mean, remember. <laughs> it's hard to remember. We'll see what happens. We'll see if it... Uh, they don't care because... Or they don't seem to care. They just wanted some sort of generic name because their strategy now is for each of the brands to operate almost autonomously and build each of them. So Juicy Couture will be built and... Kate Spade and Lucky and so on. Mm-hmm. And if in the future they maybe make another acquisition or develop a new company, they would do the same thing there. Hmm. Okay. So that's so the Fifth and Pacific name is strictly you know like uh, I don't know PVH or you know mm. some other company or Vanity Fair with VF not Vanity Fair VF that owns a million brands. Yes, right. Okay. Right. Um, in your book, you talk about the succession issue that you faced. Um, it was a challenging one, it, it sounds like, at, at Liz Claiborne. What advice would you give companies faced with replacing a highly successful CEO? Well, I think to some degree it depends upon the industry, and it depends upon how important the board feels or the company feels that industry expertise is critical to the success of whatever CEO they bring in. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt that way. I really wanted to get somebody directly out of the fashion industry who could come and run our company. The problem was we were a one-of-a-kind company. We were a fashion company. But at the same time, we were a multi-billion-dollar company, which was kind of unheard of in that industry. So it's not only being in the fashion business. It's also being, okay, can, can we find someone who's capable of running a multi-billion-dollar company with 10,000 employees right. and manufacturing products in 40-some-odd countries around the world and all of the complications and logistics and so on and so forth? We couldn't find anybody. Mm. So when we, when we um, came across, or the headhunters we were using, brought Paul Sharon to our attention, he had just a little bit of apparel background. He had worked uh, 
he he, had, he was working with, at the time we hired him. He had, he was working for VF Corporation, and um, he had a little something to do with one of their intimate apparel divisions. But he wasn't a real you know garment center person. But he um, he had a good business school background. He seemed to understand. He came out of his his major background was Procter and Gamble, mm-hmm. so he came out of consumer goods. So we kind of rationalized, and me and the rest of the board, we we figured, well, well, we'll just make it happen. At the time we hired him, I told the board that we would also have to hire a partner, and I think I talk about that in the book. Yep. And um, we did hire a um, a, a garment center person to sort of be his partner for and I left and um, that person stuck around as a woman she stuck around for the length of her contract which was two years and then for a whole bunch of reasons it just wasn't working and she left and they never really developed this partnership strategy which I thought would be important for the company Hmm. okay interesting um, so it's it's clear from uh, reading all the press these days that social media like Facebook, Twitter, blogs, etc., have changed the way that fashion and many goods are sold um, by giving the consumers more information about brands more quickly, about prices, by posting reviews of new products almost instantly. Does that make the fashion business even tougher? Well, let's say it doesn't make it any easier. <laughs> you know, it's such a tough business. In every regard, that every little bit of complication that you add to it makes it just a, a little bit tougher. Mm-hmm. But it's just a little bit tougher than it would be without it. So it's not significantly more difficult because of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I know that uh, Liz Claiborne herself never graduated from high school. Right. If you have to give advice to today's high school students interested in fashion, what would it be? Well... The advice would be for them to um, learn about the entire industry. You have to go, go if you're a fashion person, if you want to be a designer of some kind, and that's your talent and that's where you want to spend your life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also important to understand the consumer, understand all of the elements that go into running a business. Because mm-hmm. it's not enough to just design something and hope that it's you know going to electrify right. the world. Uh-huh. It doesn't work that way. And these kids watch programs like Project Runway and get all excited and think, well, if I design this one thing and make it, and you know, everybody will love it, and um, I'll become a millionaire overnight. So, um, and the other thing I, I suggest, and I, I, I had a meeting just recently with a couple of young ladies who were just graduating from uh, design school, and um, told them how important it was if they they had to they had to become apprentices. They might think they're designers, but they're really not. Mm-hmm. And I said you have to go to work for a company and learn what it is to be a designer and how to make a garment and the problems of fabric and trim and 
all of the things that go into garments and the manufacturing problems and why you can't design in a certain way because there's no way you can turn out a garment like that out in any kind of quantity and everything that's necessary mm-hmm. to put together, you know, fashion and um, uh, business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you have to, I mean, you obviously have to have a, a good design sense and an imagination and all that. Do you have to have good leadership abilities, or is that something you would leave to... As a designer? Yeah. I would say you need good, good par- a good partner or partners. Okay. And you do what you do best, and hopefully you have people in the company who are experts in what they do. Okay. Which is pretty much what happened in Liz Claiborne. What this might be a difficult question for you to answer, but what what would you say your biggest mistake was running the company, or bef- even before you became CEO, during that whole thirty-year tenure? Well, again, with the benefit of hindsight, right? I would have. Um, moderate our growth. Mm. Um, I think we allowed the growth to, or the potential, the growth potential to overtake the company instead of us being in charge of it. Mm -hmm. It's a hard thing to explain, Mm. but, you know, it's so exciting for me anyway. Mm To, to report and better and better numbers, especially after we went public. Yeah. I mean, I loved it. I loved those quarterly things that were up 20% or 40 whatever. And um, I think looking back now that I got carried away, that we should have, we should have done things more moderately. I, um, I very much appreciate, and I do mention in the book a couple of times, that the Ralph Lauren model was a much better model, long range, and, and he's still around and still cooking, and um, things are going well there. Now, of course, he's primarily in the men's business, which is a much different business and, a, and in many ways, a much easier business. But um, I just like he um, he balanced out. I wanted our company to eventually become very important in our own retail business. Unfortunately, we had grown so fast with the department stores and we were so locked in and and dependent upon those people, not only for the clothing we made, but for every other division in the company, including jewelry and fragrance and accessories and so on and so forth, um, that we were just, we, we couldn't move anymore. We yeah. couldn't make any moves. Too big, too fast. And yeah. we tried to, oh, we did open some stores but we were never able to be successful because we were, at that time, we were getting caught in the whole sale mentality of the department stores, mm-hmm. which is another thing that, well, I can't say I made a mistake. I tried very, very hard to stay out of those messes with the department stores, but it became it just became impossible. Interesting. I have one last question. Uh, 
And that is about customer service, which you which you um, write about several in several places in your book. And it was uh, clearly a mantra for you and other retailers during those years. You spent a lot of time visiting stores, talking to customers and salespeople, trying to understand the market. Um, these days, companies continue to give a lot of lip service to customer service. Um, but if you were to poll customers, I'm not sure they would say that this service, you know, in industries ranging from retail to telecom to healthcare, they would not say that service is all that great. Um, how has customer service evolved? I mean, is it is it still, are people just paying lip service to it? Is it really a, a, a core uh, goal of companies? Or how do you read that? I think, I think if you go to the top levels of management, they think it's important. Mm-hmm. And they talk a good game. Right. But they're not willing to pay for it. Mm. So they would like it to happen, but... They're not putting the assets to work to make it happen. In many cases, it's people, and they don't want to pay for people. It's mm-hmm. the training of the people. It's all the things that go into it. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, the um, in talking about the department stores today, uh, once upon a time, um, your mother enjoyed shopping, Okay. And in the department store. It was a nice thing to do. It was a lot of fun. And um, it's not that way anymore. Mm. People, people, well, they hate it. You know, mm. I go because I have to, or words to that effect. Mm. There, there's um, nothing nice about it. <laughs> a, a few stores, I mean, Neiman's and Saks, and to some degree Nordstrom's, mm-hmm. do a reasonably good job. Bloomingdale's would, you know, follow just behind them. But beyond that, there's nobody. Mm. And um, they can't afford it. Yeah. Um, they, the whole infrastructure of what stores used to do and, and the staff of people that they had to make all of that work, gone, all yeah. of them. Yeah. So it's not even just the salespeople, although they're the most important, the closest to the consumer. But there was a whole infrastructure built around the salespeople. Mm. And um, so I guess my answer to your question is every, every CEO would like to have terrific service. None of them, or very few, are willing to pay for it. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.